So Brett and Michaela say, hey, we went to see them. We had to be careful because there was an alligator patrolling the parking lot of the apartment complex they were in. And there's a bear across the street. I'm not kidding. Uh, it was about a three foot alligator. <clears throat> anyway, so our little, me, anyway, we had to keep track of where the dog was. <clears throat> My faith has found a resting place. 389, 389. Stand with me. And, and let's sing all four verses, but let's just sing the refrain on one and four. So all four verses, refrain on one and four of seated and turn to 410 410 are you able 410 let's sing one two and four 410 one two and four
over to 178, please. 178. So our offering hymn this morning, My Anchor Holds, 178. Let's sing all four verses. My Anchor Holds, stand with me. 178. <clears throat> Thank you. 
Would you get a copy of the outline? If you didn't and would like to have one, wave your hand there, Brother Garland can bring you one. We are looking at actually what's the last section of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount this morning. And you'll see why um, the songs, how the songs tied in. The last song we sang about an anchor holding uh, is kind of a different metaphor, but still a, a ship with an anchor or it's, it's the solid rock that's Jesus. And then Chris is off for Tori just now blending two songs about the, the rock. Um, <clears throat> this is about um, bewaring a false, be, beware of a false foundation is what this text talks about. I mean, as Jesus has been wrapping up his Sermon on the Mount, we've, it's taken a few weeks while we look at his closing segments. The sermon itself explains the character of those who are his and, um, and those who, that is, those who will enter the kingdom. He's issued now, he's issuing a closing charge that they, they turn from the wide gate that opens onto a broad and easy path. We saw that a couple of weeks ago, uh, that path that leads to destruction and charges them instead to find that narrow gate through which they would enter a constricted and difficult path that leads to eternal life. And uh, to find that path, you have to beware not only your own inclinations, because it's so much easier to, and more comfortable to take the other way, uh, but also the deception of false prophets who are going to be trying to talk you into taking the wrong path. Um, they, he says they come like voracious wolves disguised as good shepherds, wearing sheep's clothing, or that is the clothing of a shepherd, actually is what that means. Um, and he charges that the people who hear these teachers, that's all of us, that listen to teachers, um, as, as you listen to me even today, um, we have to be careful inspectors of the fruit of their lives and of what they teach to see whether it's consistent with the Word, um, to discern whether or not they're teaching the truth. And, and compounding the problem, um, as we saw last time, that, that many of them are claiming, will claim to serve the Lord and even give outward evidence that they are serving the Lord, that they've performed many mighty, mighty acts in His name, but only a few of them are testifying truly. And many, like the many who choose to walk the, the broad, easy path through that broad gate, many make these claims falsely. Now, we don't know. We talked about it again last week. Some of them may be liars. Some of them may simply be deluded. Um, but, but they're the ones who say they believe, but don't obey the will of the Father, as Jesus said. That they don't obey the will of the Father. Now, Make sure I, make, I want to make it this point again, as I made it last week. One's salvation is never accomplished by your actions. There is nothing you can do to earn your way into heaven, none of us. If, if When we're standing before the Lord on Judgment Day and He says, why should I let you in? And you say, well, look at how good I was. That's never going to be good enough. There's nobody going to be good enough to get in on that standard. None of us. Every one of us has to rely entirely on the mercy and grace of God for our salvation. Um, and we got to be careful not to look down our noses at others who, who've, who've done things that we might find despicable and think, well, we're better than they are. <laughs> if, if, in fact, my behavior is better than theirs, it's only by God's grace. Um, and the truth is we, we all deserve, deserve the, same, uh, the, the same destiny if, uh, if we're going to demand justice instead of mercy. Our whole plea is to cry out for mercy. Um, as, as, I've, as I've said before, no one will ever become a Christian by following a particular code of, code of ethics or a code of behavior. However, no Christian will ever become Christ-like without that, without obeying Christ's instructions and obeying His Word, which is what, um, what He commands of us. The presence of the indwelling Holy Spirit actually guarantees at least a measure of evidence of inner transformation, that what he has, what He has made us as new creatures in Christ will become visible, at least to a degree. Um, none of us will ever get entirely there until we see Him. We'll be like Him when we see Him uh, as, as He is, but not before then um, in the resurrection. Um, but if a person has truly believed in Christ, it's going to be reflected in their attitudes. It's going to be reflected in their actions. Never perfectly, never consistently but there's still going to be some evidence of it. Um, so a person is in Christ if he can say, you know, I, I acknowledge that my sin makes it impossible for me to please God. 
and, and that Christ is my holy and, and righteous judge, and I deserve everlasting punishment. But I believe Jesus is the Son of God, that He died for my, in my place, and He rose again to save me from my sins. I've asked Him to forgive me and to make me a new person in Him, and by His grace, I'm going to try to live for Him and live like Him. That's a person who's truly saved. And there ought to be evidence, however imperfect, of submission to His authority, the fruit of the Spirit being developed in this person's life. And that's what Jesus has been saying in this entire sermon. But the, the issue that Christ placed before us, though, in, in the passage we looked at last week, verses 21 to 23, is not the question of whether someone can be a Christian and not really look like it. That's the question I was just describing. But the question he placed before us is whether or not we can count on somebody being a Christian just because they look like it. That's a tougher question. Um, that's, that's, those people looked like Christians but really weren't. And Jesus said, I will say to them in that day, depart from me, I never knew you. Um, that's, that's a warning that's pretty severe, that there's gonna be, there will be many who look like Christians and really aren't. They make professions of faith, give outward evidence of submission to the, the Lordship of Christ, and will still be turned away. And immediately following that warning against the false profession of faith that we looked at last week, he makes a familiar analogy, because we know this text pretty well, um, to illustrate real faith. He uses a metaphor of two builders. He distinguishes between those who act on what they hear and those who do not. Um, and then at the very conclusion, after he's wrapped up the sermon, there, there are the last two verses of this text that we'll look at this morning. Matthew adds, just, it's just one sentence in the Greek um, the, to summarize the general reaction of the crowd who had been listening to Jesus on that day. Let me read the text uh, that we'll be looking at, verse 24 through the end of the chapter. Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 29. Therefore... Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against the house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at His teaching, for He was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Let's pray. Father, we ask that You would add Your blessing to our reading of Your Word today. And as we take a few minutes now to examine this text and kind of unpack it, and uh, that we'd understand um, the significance of the, of the message, the metaphor that Jesus used is this, this, these final words of this, his, his longest sermon um, the, the, in, in the written record of the New Testament. And we might understand what he's saying to us and that we might take it to heart and apply it and, and live by the principles that are revealed here. And Lord, if there's one today that doesn't know Christ, that they might understand their need, that they might recognize maybe they thought they were saved for years and, and they really recognize they've never come to personal faith in Christ, that they might recognize their need and repent of sin and turn to Him even today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in the first couple of verses, Jesus is talking about one He calls the wise man. The wise man. When He says this man hears these words of mine, that expression means that, that, that he's not ignoring what Jesus says. He's, he's, he's actually doing the opposite. He's paying attention and listening to him. That's the first sub-point, letter A, if you want. He's paying attention and listening to Jesus. It's like the guy who, who's actually reading his Bible, who comes to church and wants to hear and wants to learn and to be instructed. And then Jesus adds an important proviso. Not only is he paying attention and listening, he's doing what Jesus said to do. That's really important. He's doing what Jesus said to do. He's not making an empty profession. He's taking direct action to put Jesus' instructions into practice. In the, in the previous verse just, just the, that we looked at last time, he, he rebuked those who are practicing lawlessness. This is the opposite. 
This is a guy who's not practicing lawlessness. He's practicing obedience. He's, he's listening and then, and then acting on what Jesus said to do. Um, and interesting thing that Jesus does here, he uses an, an important expression. He speaks of those, this, what he's teaching here as these words of mine. And the, uh, the pronoun mine there, the, the possessive pronoun is emphatic in that s- sentence in the Greek. The one who listens to and does acts on these words of mine. It's parallel to what he was talking about in the previous passage when he talked about doing the will of my Father who is in heaven. And it's a really important statement that Jesus makes that equates his words with the will of the Father. You say, well, how do I know what the will of the Father is if we're supposed to be doing the will? Well, you know because Jesus tells us. His words are an expression of the will of the Father. Because in verse 21, he said that only he who does the will of the Father who is in heaven will enter the kingdom. Then he described those practicing lawlessness instead of obedience. Now he's explaining that doing the will of the Father is to act on these words of mine. And so not only has this person been listening and set out to to do what Jesus said to do, to break that down just a little bit, he accepts Jesus' words as the Father's will. He accepts Jesus' words as the Father's will. And he acknowledged, secondly, Jesus' authority as his Lord. It's to say, okay, I I realize. You know, as I mentioned last last week, the person's not saved who comes to the Lord and says, I want to go to heaven, but you can't tell me what to do because you're not my boss. Well, Jesus says, yeah, I am. You'll either go your own way or you'll go my way. Um, and Jesus is the only way to the Father. Now this man, this wise man, Jesus is just described here in verse 24, he's not the one who's just saying, Lord, Lord. He's showing his submission to Christ as Lord by doing what he said. And I mentioned again a verse I quoted last week, Luke 6, 46. Jesus asked, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? On the night he was betrayed. Um, well, let me back up. In John, in John 8, 31, a little earlier, he told his disciples, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. A little later, on the night he was betrayed, he explained to them, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. And once again, he equates his word with the Father's will. It is impossible to separate obedience from faith. You cannot obey your way into heaven. But if you truly believe, you you will obey. Now, not always, not consistently. I'm not saying that the person who, who sins is now cast out. I don't believe anyone ever loses their salvation because we're secure in Christ. Our salvation is maintained by Him, not by me. Not by my behavior. As a, I, I read something last week about uh, that may not be the perfection of the Lord's will in our lives, but it is the direction. It's the intention of our heart. It's what we want to be. It's what we try to be. We're not practicing lawlessness. We're trying to obey. We're listening to Him and we're acting on His words, treating them as authoritative and as the guide for how we ought to live. D.A. Carson, a Greek scholar and biblical scholar, makes this point. He says that the Greek verb that follows will be better translated as a future passive voice than the present active that's found in most translations. Let me explain what he means by that. All right. Um, Here, in the New American Standard from which I read this, uh, it says, he may be compared to. um, uh, The King James says, I will liken him unto a builder. Um, Carson is arguing that it should be rendered, will become like. He explains this. He says, quote, the future tense is significant. The one who puts Jesus' words into practice will become like the man who on judgment day, when the the great storm comes, will stand fast because of his good foundation, end quote. Here's the point he's making. 
that the future tense in the passive voice, as he's arguing again, don't worry about the technicalities of, of the grammar. But Jesus is not just saying, here's a good parallel. I mean, it is a metaphor, but he's not just saying it's kind of like this. You'll be kind of like a builder. Now, what he's saying is that you are the builder in a very real sense. Each of us is building a structure that is our lives. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians. We're all building a structure that's our lives. And what's critical about that structure is the foundation. And so not only is Jesus saying, I'll compare him to, but I will identify him as a builder on that day. And we'll evaluate the building on the basis of its foundation. Um, so that's the, it may, it may be um, maybe a relatively minor point, but I think it's worth noting that. And so I stated that this way in the outline, I didn't say he will be like a wise builder, but he becomes a wise builder. The one who listens and acts on these words of mine becomes a wise builder. And the key feature that identifies him as a wise builder is his building is on a solid foundation. He builds his house on the rock. And the word rock is not a small stone. It's an outcrop of bedrock. You know, building on that kind of a foundation is not accidental and it is not accomplished casually. It's something one has to work at to get down to that bedrock foundation to, to start your structure there. You've got to remove a lot of stuff to get to the bedrock upon which you can found this building. It, it requires intentional work and, and, and hard work in a sense. And Paul picks up this metaphor in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now Paul changes the metaphor a little. Paul, Paul uses the metaphor of once that structure is built, he talks about it being purged by fire. And whatever remains is that which was done for Christ. Jesus is not using that. He's, he uses the metaphor of a storm in this passage here. He describes it in terms of a storm, a severe storm. As, uh, again, a picture of the coming judgment. Um, and so in this passage that we're looking at here, this man who is building, he's building on a solid foundation but he's building to withstand the coming storm, that coming storm of judgment. <clears throat> and he built well. His house, his house is assaulted by heavy rain, by floods, by wind slamming against it. And it says, yet it did not fall. And Jesus tells us the reason it did not fall, the reason it was able to withstand the tempest is it had been founded on the rock. Not a rock. He says the rock. I talked about what rock meant. But the definite article here is, this rock is Jesus. All right, that's the point, as the songwriter said. In the song that um, Chris was actually playing for the offertory, this rock is Jesus. Um, the little epistle of Jude that's tucked in there just in front of Revelation, I've cited a verse there. Um, in in it, that epistle focuses on the coming judgment of God that will fall upon false teachers. So it's particularly appropriate in the context of this sermon here um, because he's been talking about the, the false teachers. But he ends that letter with, with what may be my favorite doxology found in Scripture that reminds the genuine believer of the contrasting destiny, the judgment falling upon the... Um, false teacher versus what, the, what God has in store for the genuine believer. And he's speaking of it in very similar terms of this, in this, that Jesus uses in this principle. In Jude, verse 24, he says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority, before all time, and now, and forever. Amen. Christ alone is able to make you stand. You're going to have to stand in His presence. You're going to have to appear in His presence. Whether you're able to stand in His presence or not is going to be up to Christ because of the foundation upon which we are standing. He is the rock.
that will make us able to stand in the presence of God in that judgment. Now, that's what he says about the wise builder. On the other hand, in the next verse, Jesus describes what he calls a foolish man. You know, we, as a kid, we learned that song, the wise man built his house upon the rock, and the foolish man built his house upon the sand, right? Um, <clears throat> the rains came down, the floods came up, the house on the rock stood firm, but the house on the sand went <laughs> splat, right? <laughs> um, that's, this is the passage um, for, from which that song comes. And don't miss that Jesus says that this man, in one sense, is very much like the wise man who built well, this man also hears these words of mine. This man also is paying attention and listening. He's reading the Bible. He's coming to church. He's wanting to learn. He's trying to, and he's, and he's hearing what, what he says. But he adds the important distinction that he does not act on them. He's disregarding what Jesus said. He hears them. He just doesn't do it. He thinks he knows better. He thinks he's got a better plan for his life. He's disregarding what Jesus said to do. Like, um, like the wise man, he understands the words. Jesus' words are the Father's will. He, he gets that. He, he understands that. He's not saying, oh, this isn't what the Father wants. He understands that. He just doesn't think what the Father wants for him is relevant. He thinks himself the final authority for his life, not Jesus. That's the difference. Number two, they're, they're alike up until that point. They're both listening. They're both paying attention. They both understand that Jesus' words are, in fact, the Father's will. The wise man then decides to act on it because the, the, he recognizes Christ's authority as his Lord. The foolish man decides to disregard it because he doesn't accept Christ's authority because he thinks he himself is the final authority for his life. He may be one who will say to Christ, Lord, Lord, but he's determined to do things the way he thinks best. I cited two verses from Proverbs. They're actually exactly the same. Um, They say exactly the same thing. There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And that's the principle Jesus is illustrating here. Many will be the defiant ones at the judgment boasting with Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. And Jesus will reply, yup, and look where it got you. Because every individual's natural inclination, every one of us, our natural inclination, not just us, but everybody else too, Every human's natural inclination is to think that he or she ought to be allowed to come to God on his terms. It's just not fair to have only one way. Why can't I come to God my way? Why can't I come to God on my terms? In our study in Genesis tonight, we're going to see how that didn't really work out so well for Cain. Okay? Everybody hopes to have a blessed life in heaven, but few are willing to surrender to the authority of Jesus as their king. And there's the rub. The foolish man decided he could build just as well as the other guy and maybe even finish faster because he doesn't have to go to all the trouble of finding that solid foundation. And so he can get an earlier start, a quicker start, and maybe get his structure up fastest and, and, and look at least as impressive. He disguises from others, maybe even from himself, but he becomes a foolish builder. He's the foolish builder. While the wise man becomes a wise builder, this man becomes a foolish builder. He's not just like one, he is one. Again, same thing with the verb forms. Instead of building his structure, his house, on a foundation of bedrock, he builds on a foundation of sand. And it's difficult to imagine a less stable foundation than sand, right? 
difficult. I mean, you, you know, our, our son and his family live close to the beach in the Florida Panhandle, and one of the things we like to do whenever we go down to see them is we go out to the beach with the kids and build castles in the sand and such. You know, it doesn't take, if you, build it too, if you build it too far in from the surf, the sand just won't pack, and it won't, you can't stack it up. So you've got to build it where the sand's wet. You've got to get the sand wet. But you understand that when the tide comes in, the castle's gone, right? A couple of waves and it's nothing but just a little hump. Doesn't matter how big you built it. And then it's completely, you can't find any, any evidence of it tomorrow um, because the tide came in just washed right over it because sand just is not a solid foundation. And it's not just that you built it out of sand. You could build it out of sticks and you could, build it, you could use whatever lumber or other building materials you want. If you build it on the sand, it's going to wash away because the tide is going to wash that sand right out from under it. It's hard to imagine a less stable foundation. And that's the point Jesus is making. When we start trying to build our house on something other than Jesus Christ, it's like building on sand. It has no stability to it. Um, but this guy, this builder that he's talking about here, found a nice smooth parcel, and he didn't want to take the time or go to the effort to dig deep to the bedrock uh, for a foundation. And so he doesn't build to be secure. He builds to look impressive. He builds to look impressive, number two. He wants an impressive structure, something people will like and will, will, will look nice and will be comfortable for him. Now, the implication of Jesus' words, the way this whole thing is structured, is that these two houses are very similar in appearance. Um, may even be at a very similar in location. Maybe, you know, they both seem to be hit by the same storm. Um, and uh, if you carry the metaphor too far, I suppose, they could have been living side by side in the same neighborhood. They are, the houses are, the point is this, the houses that these two men built are outwardly indistinguishable. You and I looking at the house won't be able to, it takes, it takes a structural in, investigation or a, uh, an inspection to realize that the one is built on, on a sand foundation. And as far as outward observers are concerned, the only way anybody could tell the difference in these two structures is by witnessing what happened at the end of the storm. That's the only way you can tell. And that's the point Jesus is making person can live their life and look respectable and presentable, but if their life is built on a foundation of sand, they will not be able to stand in the judgment, what Jude was talking about. Like the man who built his house on the rock, this man's house was assailed by the floods and the rains and the winds slamming against it. But unlike the other man's house, which did not fall, Jesus says, it fell, and great was its fall. He uses two different words for fall in this statement. The second one has the additional intensifying word translated great, which is the Greek word mega. Translate literally what Jesus said is it collapsed, and it was a mega crash. When that house fell. It was utterly destroyed, that structure. Now, applying the principle. Applying the principle. And it has two different applications. One has to do with, with the coming judgment. That's letter B. But first of all, consider through life. There is an application through life. How we respond to the stresses of life. Building on the foundation that is Jesus Christ equips the believer to withstand the stresses of life and weather those storms in a way that building a on, a, on a different kind of a foundation will not permit. A wise person founding his life on Christ builds a life that can withstand anything. Not because they're so strong, but because the foundation's unshakable. How often have we seen somebody come through some great tragedy and say, I don't know how they did it. Well, it's not because of their personal strength. It's because of the strength of the foundation upon which they stand. And it does make a difference. One whose life is built on Christ can stand through the trials and the tests of life. 
And life is filled with trials and tests. If you haven't noticed, you're not paying attention. <laughs> okay. Life is filled with trials and tests. And to the youngsters among us, it just gets worse. <laughs> Isn't that encouraging? That's what you came for, right? I came to have the pastor encourage me today. So how long do I have to struggle in life with trials and tests? <laughs> Till you die. That's the last trial. But then they're done. If you built your life on Christ. But you can withstand those things and you can, you can actually, you can actually know joy in spite of tragedy. if your life is founded on Jesus Christ. And others will not be able to understand that. That's why Paul calls that a peace that passes understanding. All right? Say, and, and somebody watching that, somebody, other believers watching that haven't been through the same storm might marvel and say, and might even be afraid, if it happened to me, I don't know if I'd be able to do that. That's where we need to have the confidence of our faith that God will give us the ability when the time comes. Instead of spending a lot of time fretting now about whether I'll be able to do that when, the time, when, when facing that challenge, just trust Him that He knows when the challenge comes and He knows to give you the strength you'll need for that day. He's not going to give you today the strength you need for that day. But He'll give you that day the strength that you need because you're standing on the foundation that's Jesus Christ. And you can weather those storms. There's no trial that takes you, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, but such as is common to man, but God's faithful. Who won't allow you to be tested beyond what you're able, but will with the temptation provide the way through, it says literally in the Greek, a way of escape, but the way out, that you'll be able to bear it. It's not because you're so strong. If you're looking for that strength from within, you'll never find it. If that strength comes from the foundation upon which you stand. The one whose life then is built, on the other hand, on self. The foolish person builds his life on those shifting sands. Self-will, self-fulfillment, self-purpose, self-sufficiency, self-satisfaction, self-righteousness. If you build your life on self, then you will collapse under the severe trials and tests of life. And the truth is, in many cases, the differences in the two foundations aren't even going to be... In many cases, the differences between those two are going to be evident in life. You'll see someone else who's struggling, and, and it doesn't necessarily mean they're not a believer if they're struggling. But if they collapse under pressure and turn their back on God and walk away from Christ and the church and any trust in God, they're giving pretty clear evidence they never really believed to start with. But sometimes that's not even going to be evident through the trials of life. Sometimes it's not going to be evident until the final judgment. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. He's been talking about in the last day, in the previous verse, what he'll say on that day. And so in the coming judgment is an application here as well. Those who built their lives on the foundation of Jesus Christ are secure. Those founded on Christ are secure in the judgment. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Peter proclaimed, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And as I've already read from Jude, he's the one who is able to make you stand. But those whose lives are founded on anything else, anything else, whatever code, whatever personal successes, whatever they're trusting, if they've built their life on anything other than Christ, they are doomed. They're doomed. It cannot withstand the judgment. They will not be able to stand or withstand 
the wrath of God and the judgment. And that's that judgment that Jesus is emphasizing here. He's not, now, he's not teaching annihilation. He's not saying that the builder was destroyed and was no more. It was the structure that he built that was annihilated. It was that structure that was destroyed. The builder then is just left standing there with nothing to protect him. Jesus is teaching accountability in the judgment, not annihilation. Now this has really important implications for Christian ministry. It has implications for Christian evangelism. You know, there, there have been a lot of books written on the need for effective follow-up to disciple new converts. And that's, that's after, you know, after an evangelistic campaign. So often we've seen, many of us grew up in an era in which uh, you'd have big evangelistic campaigns. Somebody come through and you'd get thousands of people who signed the card saying they made a profession of faith in Christ and nobody follows up on any of that. Nobody goes to see them. Nobody goes to visit them. There's no real disciple making going on. And I will admit that that is often lacking. But the truth is, I think a much greater problem is in making sure that those who made a profession of faith were really converted. Because it's really difficult to follow up on and disciple somebody who's not been converted. Right? You're going to have a hard time finding them, and they're not going to want to have any time, they're not going to want to have anything to do with you. And that's really not about whether or not you're succeeding in your follow-up. It's sometimes we're trying to follow up and disciple someone who really wasn't converted to begin with. Because the truth is, when somebody makes a false profession of Christ, they're really not that interested in growing Christ-like and trying to follow up with that. It's not going to be very successful. But those who truly are converted and want to be saved and want to become like Christ, they're going to come looking for help. They're going to want to associate with Christ and His people. And so follow-up isn't quite as difficult when people are actually trying to find help and wanting to learn and to grow. I read recently, this is kind of a historical example, it comes from the 1980s, um, but I was reading of just recently of a large evangelical church who claimed in one year to have had 28,000 conversions, 9,600 baptisms, and 123 new additions to the church. And I found, I was like, wait, what? Run those numbers by me again? 28,000 conversions, one-third of whom came for public baptism, and only four in a thousand who actually affiliated with the church. Four out of every one thousand actually affiliated with the church. And I, you know, I, I submit that it is impossible for so many true conversions to have produced so few Christians who want to identify with Christ and His church. And you're just swelling the numbers. You may have had 28,000 professions of faith, but very, very few were genuinely converted. If you've only had 123 new people start coming to church and affiliate with the church. It's been a little over 20 years ago that I was actually teaching a workshop on this subject, the subject of avoiding a false profession at the National Leadership Conference in Lansdale, Pennsylvania. <clears throat> and I concluded with this paragraph. And I was talking to, it was a pastor's conference, and there was probably, I probably had about 150 pastors there in the room for my workshop. And I asked him this, uh, this it's kind of a series of questions. <clears throat> he said, we need to answer, we, we answer to God, here's, here's, here's what I've written, we answer to God for the integrity of our work for Him. Are we trying to build a ministry on quick and easy professions? Have we reduced the Christian walk to our own codes of grooming and behavior? Is being a soul winner or using the right Bible our litmus test for what constitutes genuine faith with other matters considered irrelevant? Or are we willing to challenge people to be genuinely transformed by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ our Lord? End quote. Now, as we come to the last two verses of this chapter, I will not be quite as concise as Matthew, because Matthew states it in a single sentence, <clears throat> but I will be brief as we look at these last two verses. In verses verse 28 and 29, we see the amazed crowd. Verse 28 says, When Jesus had finished these words, the crowd were amazed at His teaching. The word translated, the word translated amazed 
means literally to be stricken with astonishment. And the word astonishment is an interesting word. You see, see the root word in the middle of that word is stone. Um, the, the King James um, sometimes uses an archaic rendering of that word and translates it astonied. All right, um, made like stone is what that word literally means. Um, the, the point, it, it implies immobility and an inability to respond or even speak, uh, at least not coherently. And so, as I put it here, for the sake of the outline, the crowd was, was in many ways quite literally dumbfounded by the power of Jesus' words. They'd never before heard teaching so comprehensive, so insightful, so profound, they were dumbfounded. And Matthew doesn't quote them. He explains why they were astonished, right? Astonished or amazed. Because they acknowledged Jesus' claim to authority. He was teaching them as one having authority. He's the king who's just presented what it means to be a subject of the kingdom and what those subjects of the kingdom look like. And he has said that you've got to obey the will of the Father, which they probably would have agreed with. But he said, you can tell what the Father wants by listening to me. That's what Jesus said. My words. And if you listen to these words and do them, then you'll be obeying the Father. But see, what they needed was not so much to be astonished at his words and his claim of authority. They needed genuine faith that he spoke the truth and that he really was, in fact, the Son of God. Because Jesus' intent that day was not to amaze everybody. Some people came to watch him so they could be amazed. Generally, he tended to send those people away. But his, his, his purpose that day was not to amaze them. They needed to recognize who he was. He came to call them to salvation. And the overwhelming majority of the people who heard Jesus himself preach this Sermon on the Mount on that day went away lost. Because they heard his words, recognized he spoke with the authority of the Father, but they did not act on them. They did not do it. They were determined to build their house on a false foundation of their own self-will. They lacked the faith for salvation because very, very few of them became wise builders who acted on them. And you know, it's always tragic when people hear the gospel and walk away unchanged. Now you fill in all the blanks. I'm not quite done. But I'll be done in a second. The concluding section of this Sermon on the Mount identifies that this whole sermon, these, um, all of these three chapters, five, six, and seven, and I've taken months to work our way through it. But the whole thing is not just an ethical discourse as it is so often treated. Well, there is much of ethical teaching within it. It is primarily and foundationally, fundamentally, it is messianic. It presents Christ as the coming king. To quote D.A. Carson again, he says, quote, Jesus speaks in the first person and claims that his teaching fulfills the Old Testament, that he determines who enters the messianic kingdom, that as the divine judge, he pronounces banishment, that the true heirs of the kingdom would be persecuted for their allegiance to him, and that he alone fully knows the will of the Father, end quote. That's the theme of this sermon of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And so many so-called scholars today come to the, come to the New Testament and, and they say that all reference to Jesus as divine were later editions and later embellishments of those who, who doctored the text of the Scriptures. Um, they've completely missed the point of this earliest of Jesus' recorded sermons. They'll quote it. They just don't believe it. They don't believe the point that he was making. Because this sermon is in total a call to genuine faith in Christ Jesus as the Lord. 
And this passage that we've just looked at is very well expressed in the words of the old hymn by Edward Mote. We're going to sing this hymn in closing, and I've got it listed. What, I want, what I've got down is, is, a, is a newer tune, but we're actually not going to sing the one I've got in the bulletin. We're going to do number 383, which is the traditional tune, because that one actually uses, includes all four verses I wanted to use, um, where 380 only includes three of the verses. Um, now, let me mention this point, too. I'm, I'm going to read the text in just a second. But when Mote is writing, he uses a construction term. Since this is a construction passage, he uses a construction term when he talks about trusting a sweet frame or not trusting a sweet frame. You build a house, you get the frame, you get it plumb, you get it square, you get everything just right, and it's really sweet. It's, a, it, it's well built, a sweet frame. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When darkness veils His lovely face, I rest on His unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, His covenant, His blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, He then is all my hope and stay. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. 383, let's stand together. We'll sing this as our closing number. Dismiss us in prayer, please. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful and joyful that you allowed us to come this morning to hear your word proclaimed, share with each other, to fellowship with each other, to sing praises to your name. Lord, we ask that everything that we heard today, we can.